Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I'm Bob Solter, and I've been looking forward to our discussion for some time because the title of the book that we're going to be talking about is Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. Now, you say that title, and in most cases, you get an immediate reaction. We're going to speak with the author of the book, Bernice Hausman. Bernice is chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine. I'm pleased to say that she is joining us on our program. First of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. In beginning this discussion... Was that the only title for this book? Uh, the first part, anti-vax, was. Um, the second part, boy, that had a number of different iterations. The, um, the first one that I was working with for a long time was uh, making sense of vaccine skepticism. And then, um, then there was a time when <laughs> the title was uh, a little bit clunkier, uh, the subtitle. It was um, what... what uh, Vaccine skepticism tells us about medicine or teaches us about medicine and modernity. And that comes up, that I think now is the, is the title of the conclusion to the book. Mm-hmm. Mm. So um, the um, reframing the vaccination controversy was a conversation with the editor after she felt that the subtitles were, were just not doing the book justice. And the uh, just as a funny side note, there was a long discussion about whether or not the the should be in in the um, whether it should be the vaccination controversy or whether it should should be reframing vaccination controversy or reframing vaccination controversies, and I actually did a little crowdsourcing with friends of mine over email, my colleagues of mine, about whether we should have the the the, the in there or not. It was it was quite an amusing experience <laughs> in retrospect. The, the issue was really whether or not we were we were implying there was only one. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, uh, it, it, in, in the end, actually, it was a, a colleague of mine who used to be a journalist who said, "You need the the in there because that's going to make it um, that's going to make it more um, less academic sounding and more inviting to uh, the general reader." Which I thought was really an interesting insight, and we went with that. In your background, as I understand, you were vaccinated as a child. Uh, Mm -hmm. later as an adult. In in all honesty, I was vaccinated as a child as well. You had your own children vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Why this book? Why this approach? So uh, I study medical controversies in the public sphere, and um, I was finishing up a project and looking around for a new one. And I was also... uh, and so, and, and at the time, I was I knew that colleagues of mine and friends of mine who had children after the two after two thousand, my kids were born in the mid nineties. That they were even if they were vaccinating, they were worried about vaccinating, and some of them were delaying um, and kind of changing the recommended schedule for their children's vaccines. And uh, I was really interested in that. I was sort of interested in why they why they had those concerns. And at the same time, I was also interested in developing um, a, a 
a collaborative research group with students at Virginia Tech, where I was teaching at the time. And I was I was really interested in in a topic that I that would capture the uh, imagination of my students, who were mostly pre med. The the group of students that I was seeking to engage in this research and um, and teach them about how to do humanities research as a team. And um, and so I thought that this would be a good topic that would draw their interest, and I was right. Since that time, I've had different groups of four to five students every semester since 2010. Uh, doing research on this topic. And now I have moved that research group to Penn State College of Medicine, and I have medical students working with me um, on a project right now. The vaccination decisions with your own children, you described them as non-decisions. Why? Because uh, it was I don't know, it was just what happened when they went to the doctor as infants and children, right? The, somebody would say, well, now it's time for this vaccination, and it was sort of part of the regular set of activities that happened during well-child checkups. And I wasn't in a position at the time to think about um, to think about questioning that. And, um, and my kids also, um, my kids went to daycare. They started in daycare when they were about a year old, each of them. And th- there were requirements to uh, in sending your children to daycare in Virginia, just like sending them to school. So I was a conformist, like most parents, and didn't really think about it. But I also wasn't part. It was interesting because I was I was a, a member of La Leche League, and uh, which is a breastfeeding support organization. And uh, in sort of breastfeeding circles that I was in, there were parents who were questioning vaccines. But I, for some reason, that whole conversation really was not a part of my social networks when my my children were little. And I really only became aware of it. Um, uh, as I said, through through colleagues and friends who were having children um, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years after my kids were born. The people who refuse vaccination, does anybody have any grasp on how strong or how, um, for better, better uh, way of phrasing it, I guess is how large a group of people this is? It's the the number of chi- one of the ways that we measure this is the number of children who are are fully non-vaccinated. It's still very very small in this country, um, under two percent of all children. Now, that that number or the has been increasing um, uh, over. I think there was a there was a recent um, study done that showed that children who were born. Um, I'm, I'm going to forget the actual sort of dates, but like basically there were sort of two dates that were chosen in the 2000s, and it was shown that from um, from one one uh, period to the next, the, there was an increase in the number of children who were fully unvaccinated. Now that said, there's also been a decrease I- I- over the years in the number of children who uh, are not vaccinated because they lack access to medical care. Um, and this this initiate started with the Vaccines for Children Act in 1993 under Bill Clinton, um, which made um, federal pr- provision of vaccines for children on state um, um, Medicaid uh, and other forms of provision easier. And I think that the the and it, and it increased under the Affordable Care Act under Obama 
as uh, insurance uh, companies are, are uh, required to provide vaccines that are routinely recommended by um, the CDC. So what you see is you see what, what, I would, what I argue early in the book is that um, the proportion of children who are uh, sort of purposefully non-vaccinated um, may be increasing proportionally within the group of children who lack vaccines, but that number overall is very low. Mm. But, you know, the beliefs that the parents are expressing, the parents of those kids who are not vaccinated, some people might think, eh, you know, that's kind of, they're, they're out there, so to speak. But their beliefs are not really fringe, are they? Uh, it depends on it depends on who you talk to. There are there are some fringe beliefs that that occur, but of course there are fringe beliefs that occur in all portions of the population. Most of us have some belief somewhere that is kind of um, an outlier. But but no, you, one of the things I try to do in the book is demonstrate that um, that things that bother people about vaccines, the people who are uh, vaccine dissenters. Um, are actually um, quite common or common trends in contemporary culture. So, for example, distrust of um, big pharma and its relationship with medical um, sort of me- uh, government medical regulatory groups that um, make recommendations for vaccines, distrust of bureau- government bureaucrats making decisions for the rest of us, um, concerns about the environment, concerns about what we do to our bodies, in the service of health um, that may in fact cause other harms that we're not tracking. Those kinds of concerns are, are not limited to vaccine dissenters, um, but um, it's just that they turn this, this particular set of concerns to vaccines in ways that the majority of the population does not. Mm. But vaccination, has it ever been, I guess, universally accepted in our society? No, no. There was, it's this sort of, there's a kind of a myth that um, vaccines used to be accepted, uh, you know, by the sort of, well, I guess here, I'll start again. Vaccines have been accepted by the majority of the population in this country as a preventative um, health practice. But there have always been um, a significant portion of people who resisted vaccines, or who um, uh, were skeptical of vaccines, or who vocally dissented. And you can see it, um, so historically it goes uh, all the way back to the late 18th century when the smallpox vaccine was invented, and especially in the 19th century in both Britain and the United States, there were riots against compulsory vaccination. Um, and then the the Another a good example is the 1950s when the polio vaccine was um, developed and then um, federally licensed and disseminated in the mid-1950s. There's this uh, sort of mythology about all of these children who were um, – who were volunteered by their parents to take part in the the um, the, the vaccine trials, right? So these were the last um, part of the experimentation process to make sure that the vaccine was safe and effective. And it is true that hundreds of thousands of children were volunteered by their parents to get this experimental vaccine, the Salk polio vaccine. But it's also true that hundreds of thousands of Parents, children in the catchment areas for the trials were held back by their parents and not allowed to participate um, in getting the experimental vaccine. And so you see there 
um, this kind of tension between uh, and and then after even after it was disseminated, you know, licensed and disseminated, there were immediate concerns that not enough parents were getting their kids vaccinated. There had to be these sort of persuasive campaigns and mechanisms to get people to to be vaccinated. So there's always this tension um, since the invention of vaccines between those who are sort of um, proponents and, uh, you know, kind of zealous adherents and those who are more skeptical, um, who want more time, who want to see how other people respond to the vaccine, um, or who really are just against vaccination and, and do not want to be vaccinated. That's the voice of Bernice Hausman, who is chair of the Department of Humanities at Penn State College of Medicine. She's talking with us as the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. More with her as we continue in our program. Bernice Hausman. Bernice is chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine. I'm pleased to say that she is joining us on our program. What about media coverage of vaccines, vaccination? How has that changed over the years? So that was a really interesting finding. Um, one of the things that I was interested in looking at was, was sort of trying to answer the question of why we have such inflammatory coverage now that um, it tends to be uh, vilifying and shaming, even from very, um, you know, venerated news outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, so I had a group of students look back at um, sort of mainstream um, news reporting on vaccination from about 1980 to 2015, and what we really found is that through through the 80s and through the 90s, um, the, the news reporting was really um, what you would expect, um, relatively neutral, and there was actually a lot of sympathy for parents who were concerned about um, vaccination um, dangers. So there were uh, there was very sympathetic reporting about parental concerns with thimerosal, which is a um, mercury-based preservative that used to be used in vaccines in the United States. So the 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 reporting really changed after 2000, and, and especially, I argue, after 2004, 2006. And there were sort of a variety of, um, of uh, influences on that change, but um, 9-11 happened, and there was an increased uh, concern about bioterrorism um, and the anthrax uh, scare that happened right after 9-11. And um, and then in 2004, there was an Institute of Medicine report that could not find connections between either thimerosal or MMR and autism. And so the no- the notion was that there was a scientific there was a set of scientific studies that did a large meta analysis that demonstrated no connection between those um, the the vaccines and autism. And then in 2006, when Gardasil the um, human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine was um, was uh, licensed and approved and recommended for use among girl, preteen girls, there was a huge backlash when states started to try to mandate the vaccine and parents, especially parents on the Christian right, decided that uh, were against that. And so then there became this sort of mantra in the news that, um, look at these conservative parents. This is a vaccine that prevents cervical cancer. How can they not be in favor of it? And so there was the, there, and then of course there was the introduction of social media and Facebook 2004. And so you have this, this, that the change the way we, we report and we talk about things in the media and you have these, 
influences that lead us to a situation today where um, much of the reporting is vilifying and shaming, um, immediately moving towards uh, towards a um, uh, an analysis that it's got to be anti-vaxxers who are at the at the cause of every outbreak of infectious disease that we have, and the truth is always more complicated than that. Bernice Hausman is talking with us on our program. She is the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. As I mentioned in introducing her at the beginning of our discussion, she is the chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine. You mentioned the A-word a few minutes ago, autism. Mm -hmm. And since 2000, or the turn of this century, a lot of the attention that has been given vaccines has focused on the potential connection to autism. What do we really know about that potential connection? Well, it that depends on who you ask, but mm-hmm. um, there, there continue to be um, significant portions of the vaccine dissenting community that um, are committed to the idea that there's a connection between vaccines and autism. Um, the mainstream biomedical researchers have not found a linkage and um, and so there's uh, there continues to be uh, persistent sort of uh, uh, pressure on that point because of this disagreement. Now, what I would say is that what's interesting to a researcher like me, who's a cultural researcher, the cultural context, is the question of why, in the face of such um, kind of a staunch repudiation of this idea from mainstream biomedicine, um, is there a persistent belief among people? Why, why Why do people go to the meetings of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC three times a year? where um, a a group of experts makes recommendations for vaccine use in the American public, why do people go and at public comment continue to talk about the connection between vaccines and autism to a a group of people who do not believe that there is a a scientifically demonstrated link? So there's very, very interesting sort of cultural – um, cultural sort of uh, conflict going on there, and the persistence of this belief uh, in the in the face of a lack of scientific evidence, or at least a lack of scientific evidence that mainstream scientists um, agree on, is is really a kind of a fascinating cultural um, phenomenon. I don't have an answer for it. Mm. The role of parents takes many forms. And in an age where, you know, we have all this information literally at our fingertips, or at least the access to the information, how does a parent act responsibly when it comes to vaccination? Well, you know, Bob, this goes back to the question you asked me um, initially um, about my non-decisions about vaccinating my own children. Mm-hmm. And um, because I think that, that it's a fascinating thing that we're, in general, when it comes to um, um, health practices, we're uh, in, recommended by many different kinds of experts to do our homework and to to um, to get it, to, to inform ourselves about what we're doing and not do things blindly. And yet, with vaccination, we are in fact rewarded 
by following um, uh, sort of the, the um, recommendations um, of the CDC in uh, following a particular schedule when it comes to vaccinating our children and, in fact, vaccinating ourselves. What we see is that school entry mandates in this country, which are state-level laws that um, demand that um, children have a certain uh, number and kind of vaccines and boosters before they go to enter into uh, organized uh, daycare or schooling, that those are really what maintains a rather high level of vaccination in this country. Because when we see vaccines that are recommended but then not included in those school entry mandates, uptake is much lower. Uptake is much, much lower. And so whether or not that is um, an effect of parents paying more attention and doing their homework or just the logistics of vaccination um, that, that mean that they just don't, you know, get around to it is very unclear, but um, you, you see that people's sort of disposition is not necessarily to, to follow through with recommendations unless there's a kind of a, of a situation in which, you, you know, the rubber meets the road and you have to, otherwise your child, child won't be able to go to school. question about parental responsibility, of course, is the, is the focus of one of my chapters, and it really is this... Um, Parents, for parents who do take that question seriously and 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 are are dedicated to to ensuring that they know everything that goes into their child's bodies, um, they oftentimes run into a wall where it's unclear to them that vaccination is safe based on what they see as the ingredients when they when they research themselves the ingredients of vaccines. Now, on the other hand, you could argue that we have um, history of um, uh, safe monitoring of vaccines once they have been licensed and approved and are routinely given out to millions of children every year that the, we have a sort of set of monitoring activities where the safety and efficacy of vaccines is, in fact, monitored quite closely by the federal government and others, and that um, that, that monitoring system does not demonstrate significant adverse um, reactions to um, to the routine uh, vaccines of childhood. But that's where you really have a kind of a disagreement among um, vaccine dissenters and mainstream um, biomedical government regulators. Then how do we also begin to um, build a sense of trust when it comes to a realistic discussion about vaccines? You know, you have people who as you pointed out, are dissenters, they're disbelievers, people who think that, you know, basically the people are li lying to them. Uh, how can how can there be a consensus on this, or can there be? Well, so I don't know that there can be a consensus in agreement about vaccines and their either efficacy or their safety, but to but uh, to start a new a new kind of conversation, that is really the whole purpose of my book. And what I would say as a beginning point, and this is really why I wrote the book and why why I wrote it in the way that I did, why I looked at the things that I looked at, is that we have to actually um, instead of simply saying, well, the science scientific you know evidence 
demonstrates the safety and efficacy of vaccines for the vast majority of people. We have to look at the reasons why people dissent from vaccination and think about those reasons as meaningful rather than as irrational, wrong, um, or, or uh, you know, uh, purposefully deceitful or misinforming. And I think that, that taking, taking a perspective that suggests that people's um, beliefs are based in something and that that something is, is valuable and necessary to understand rather than something to dismiss to suggest is crazy, that's the starting point. Um, because you can't have a conversation unless there is some kind of common ground that people are coming to this set of decisions or this topic um, in a good faith way. Public People who work in public health, people who have to, to go into communities where there are outbreaks of infectious disease, know this. They, need, they know that in order to be effective in uh, containing an outbreak or maintaining the health of the community, they have to meet people where they are. And that has been this really interesting problem with vaccine dissent, is that a, a, an inability or, or a, um, a refusal to meet people where they are and, and uh, address the concerns, the specific concerns that they have in a meaningful way. The NFL preview is along at 7 o'clock this morning. JJ in the morning line at 8.30. And, of course, Melusis and Deal with that fabulous Football Sunday program along at 9 here on The Fan. Bernice Hausman, who is chair of the Department of Humanities at Penn State College of Medicine, she's talking with us as the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy. What have you learned about yourself um, as you've been conducting this research? So I, um, I have really learned that to, to sort of set aside my own views and set aside my own inclination to, um, to think about other people's views that I disagree with as crazy, uh, or irrational, and to really try to understand the logic behind the views of people that I don't agree with. And to make a space, in a way, for um, to make a space in which I, I try to identify at some something with the, the uh, with the, the the positions of people that. Um, that are acting differently than I do with respect to this question. The research that I conducted prior to, um, to this book, I, I, I wrote two books about uh, breastfeeding. And I wrote those books as an advocate uh, as well as a researcher. And uh, in this case, when I was doing, so I was not really neutral in the same way that I am now um, about vaccination, although those those, that previous research did teach, give me some of the skills that I use now in this current research. But taking a neutral position with respect to vaccines in order to understand the controversy has, has really changed the way that I think about um, the way that I go about my research. It's made me more of an anthropologist, more of a, not an observer, but when I engage in these conversations, I um, I have to really bracket and put aside my own personal views. Final question for you, because this is um, an area that has been in the news in different areas of the country. Um, in New Jersey, this was 
a huge issue recently at the uh, state house mm-hmm. where um, there was a move to abolish exemptions. The non-medical exemptions, exactly. yes. Yeah. So that's actually been, I think we're in the, in the middle of a, a really interesting kind of natural experiment with respect to that. Um, New York um, got rid of its non-medical exemptions this year. California did that in 2016. Maine uh, has done so, but I think it will take effect next year or the year after. Um, and I believe Washington State got rid of non-medical exemptions with respect to measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR. So it's an interesting, historically, non-medical exemptions have worked to dissipate political dissent about vaccination by allowing some people who are really ideologically or otherwise um, opposed to vaccination a kind of an out um, so that the vast majority of people will be vaccinated and the mandate will hold. So it's kind of like you allow some people to opt out in order to ensure that most people opt in. The, the, so historically, it's worked that way since the first conscientious objector laws were passed in Great Britain in 1898. So we will see whether or not in this country now, given this sort of begin, the changes in the laws, whether or not um, the there's there's a change in the way that these um, vaccine mandates work politically. My apprehension is that by you know people who are vac- who are against vaccination are very very worried about um, the uh, increasing uh, uh, mandates by restricting the the non medical exemptions, and it has. I think it's going to lead to increased political dissent from vaccination because people are going to feel backed up against a wall. And you see that in the incredibly vociferous dissent that occurs when this legislation is considered at the state level. I also think that you will see, as we have seen in California, an increase in medical exemptions and an increase in homeschooling as the the law can only cover those children who are in organized organized schools. And so the question of whether or not the, that outcome is worth the marginal increase in vaccination levels, um, I think we'll, we will be able to track that and study that in the future. States like New Jersey and New York have actually extremely high levels of vaccination. And um, the question of whether these um, these laws are going to give us higher levels, um, I think, is uh, it remains to be seen. Bernice Hausman, who is chair of the Department of Humanities at the Penn State College of Medicine and the author of Anti-Vax, Reframing the Vaccination Controversy, our guest in this portion of our program. Thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful discussion. Certainly the best with this book and with your work. Thank you. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program, and I've been looking forward to speaking with Colin O'Mara for some time. He's president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joining us on our program, talk with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Bob, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, How do you describe um, what the fund has, has been about? 
Yeah, so I mean, for your listeners, the easiest way is, is if they've ever gone to a park or a, a playground or uh, a state park or a national park or a forest or a wildlife refuge, they've benefited from this program. The Land and Water Conservation Fund takes a small amount of money off of royalties from offshore oil and gas development and then invests it in projects across the country. There's been projects in every single county in, in across the entire country, more than 41,000 projects. Um, that have been done through this program in the past 50 years. And what is exactly is happening with this now? So there is a, is a great bipartisan effort in a, in a time where there isn't a lot of bipartisanship um, to permanently authorize the program, which means allow it to kind of be funded. But now there's a big bipartisan push uh, in, the, in, the, in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate to permanently fund it. Um, the program's supposed to get $900 million a year. Um, which is a portion to the state to visit for federal agencies. It's only ever been fully funded twice. Um, and so there is a big push right now to try to make sure that, that those resources are there because at a time when more kids are looking at screens and folks are increasingly living, um, and spending most of the time indoors, but, and the need to have great outdoor places for folks to recreate um, is more important than ever. You say it's only been fully funded twice? Yeah, and it's in, in 54-year history, um, wow. in 1998 and 2001. And that was really specifically around a couple projects in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem uh, that they were trying to, it was a mine they were, they were basically bought after um, they kind of reached a negotiation that having having <laughs> having pretty significant uh, gold mining operations in the just outside of Yellowstone wasn't really a good idea. Um, but yeah, but only twice in the 50 years. But I mean, this is protecting... You know, is, am I overstating this to think this is protecting some pretty important stuff? Yeah, I had a, I had a chance to testify um, before the the Senate the other day on this, and I, and I said like this, this is how you protect the places that make America America. And you know, in the fifty years since the program started, um, our population has gone up by more than one hundred and thirty million people. <laughs> we, we've we've lost you know eighty ninety million acres of outdoor spaces to development and housing and energy development and roads. Um, and so this is like the one program that works across the entire country to try to make sure that those special places are available. So no matter what zip code you, you're, you live in, no matter what your income is, you can enjoy kind of the amazing outdoor recreation that um, really just makes America unique in the world. Mm. Wow. I mean, are there, there numbers in terms of what, outdoor recreation means like to the economy and things like that? Yeah, it's, it's funny. We didn't start tracking it until about in the, in the last 10 years, but it's an $887 billion, billion with a B, um, billion dollar economy. It supports 7.6 million jobs across the country. And the interesting thing is that these are jobs that are in you know, cities that are close to destinations, but also in some of the most rural communities in the country. These are folks that are you know, running you know, hotels or restaurants or uh, retail shops or you know, uh, fish and tackle shops or you know, the whole range of support services that are, are needed when folks want to uh, to travel. And it's not just around the you know the big, the famous you know, national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite or the Tetons or you know, Zion or Bryce or the, the places in Utah. It's you know jobs that support in places like Jamaica Bay right? when folks want to go visit the refuge there and they. And they they're going to have a meal, or maybe they run a maybe they run a kayak or a canoe. Um, it's all those all those additional jobs that we would not have if it wasn't for programs like this, protecting special places for all of us. Mm. We're talking on our program with Colin O'Mara, who is president CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joined us on our program talking with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund.
Now, this legislation, what's the likelihood, if this passes both houses of Congress, of this actually being signed into law by the president? I think he, I mean, the interesting with the president is that if you go get it to his desk, he's actually signed <laughs> most things, um, because that also means you got through the Republican Senate in the process. And this is one of those pro- programs that's interesting because it does benefit everybody. And so you have very conservative senators from like Western states that are huge champions of, of this program, as well as some of the most progressive members, you know, from the, from like the New York delegation. And so it's, I think it's, it's one of those areas that shows that, you know, there are those, there's some things left in Washington, maybe not many, that can still unite us across parties and having, you know, high quality outdoor spaces and more kids outdoors and, you know, protecting our cultural heritage does seem to be one of those. And, you know, there's still some folks that are concerned about the price tag or, you know, but there's, you know, the, the amount of money we spend on other things in the federal government that really don't always benefit everybody. Um, this is one of those programs that gives everybody a shot to, to enjoy the great outdoors. And what role can people who are listening to our discussion today play in this? Yeah, I think New York's benefited incredibly um, well. I mean, the city itself has got, I think, $350 million worth of projects in the last few decades. Anyone that's enjoyed, like, the like the boardwalks and the trails around, like, the Rockways or, like, at, at the um, at Coney Island, uh, like, Comente Park, um, Battery Park, I mean, all these, you know, kind of major destinations um, benefited from this program. And if they get an opportunity, I mean, just letting their, their, their Congress, the member of Congress know, um, so folks, Ignatia Velasquez has been on the committee. She's been a leading champion of the uh, of the program for a long time. Um, obviously, Senator Schumer, um, in his leadership role, um, has been pushing for this and been a great champion as well. But if they do have a chance to to you know, reach out to their member of Congress, um, that's always helpful to say this is important because we want to have these great places for the to be protected for the future. Um, there's a lot of new members. For those of your listeners that are kind of northern New Jersey, and a lot of those members are new. Um, just letting them know that it's important um, as they're trying to find their way and find the bathrooms and all the challenges of, <laughs> of being in, in D.C. Um, but I think I think just showing that it's you know this is an American issue. This isn't Republican. This isn't Democrat. And I think most folks want to have strong, vibrant local economies. Um, I think the more they hear that from us, the better. If they want to visit our website, um, it's the National Wildlife Federation, NWF. Org, nwf.org, and um, there's information about the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and we can do everything for folks if they want to contact their congressman or send them something on Twitter, and we, we can help with all of that. Um, but again, this is the kind of, you know, it's, it's the kind of, the, it's a lowercase p politics, right? This is just saying, hey, let's, let's do this good thing as you guys are fighting over so many other things. Colin O'Mara, who is president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation on the web at nwf.org. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing these insights. This is something we're definitely going to be watching. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us on our program this Sunday morning. You know what program's coming up next. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge. JJ in the morning line at 8.30. And at 9 o'clock, football Sunday action. Malusis and Deal here on The Fan. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 